Hi there, welcome along to this week's High Performance Podcast, where we speak to leading entrepreneurs, artists, sports people, and business experts to find out the tricks to their lives, the secrets, the mistakes, the successes, so you can apply them to yours. As always, thank you so, so much for the tens of thousands of downloads every week, the responses, the ratings, the reviews, they're all so, so helpful. Just a quick reminder that you can pre-order the High Performance book by going to the description in this podcast. You can also follow us at High Performance across social media. We're also on YouTube, but best of all, we're right here in your ears every single week with this kind of stuff. Here's what you can expect today. I thought, that's it, I'm done. Why am I doing this? I spent a year getting nowhere, basically. And then I woke up in the morning and I just went, nah, fuck this. Why, why am I going to let that person let me down? So I just went straight back on the phone, made a few phone calls. And on that day, I got in touch with the people that we're still working with today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi there, I'm Jake Comfrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their high performance life and you can't do a job like this alone. Professor Damien Hughes, as ever, is alongside me and Damien, self-made success stories I think provide people with such mental fortitude because they make us all feel like we too can follow that path. We too can retune our life to be successful. And today's guest is someone who has done exactly that. This is somebody that hasn't allowed themselves to be stuck in life, whether it was uh, leaving education and then choosing to go back into it on their terms, joining the corporate world, leaving it to set up on their own. There's something about not allowing yourself to get stuck that it really intrigues me about today's guest. Let's do it then, because I have a firm belief that we're all born with a kind of limitless imagination and a limitless imagination surely should give us a limitless ambition. But then the world and the people around us in it tell us otherwise. They tell us to conform. They tell us to know our limits. They tell us to understand our place. And all that is reinforced until the light inside us that we're born with is pretty much gone. And I think today's guest was showing entrepreneurial spirit, aged eight years old, selling plants, 
And then life kind of maybe told him otherwise until he was in his 40s. And then he refound that spirit to follow his entrepreneurial limits. So how has he done it and how can you follow him as well? Uh, we're delighted to welcome to the High Performance Podcast the founder of Huel. Um, if you've not tried it, you really should. Julian Hearn, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Am I looking like a picture of health having uh, been on a Huel diet for the last couple you of weeks? fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to say that. Right, let's begin as we always do. What is High Performance? I think it's just being the best version of yourself. Um, I think my dad used to say to me, he said, I don't care what you do, you just be very good at what you do. So even if you're the, you know, just try and be the best dustman in the world if you're going to be a dustman. Um, but I did have a little think about this. I thought, because obviously I know you asked this question, I thought, well, sometimes I like to define things rather than being woolly. So I thought, well, think about it from numbers point of view. So I thought, I like my fantasy football. And in fantasy football, it's like 7.1 million players at the moment. If you're in the top 10%, you'd be... 700,000. It didn't sound great. Top 1%, 70,000. Um, and people talk about top 1%, you know, 1% of the 1%, but that would be 700. That seems a little bit high. So I thought top 0.1% would get you 7,000. <laughs> and that seemed like a good target. Right. I've been sort of, I've been in the top sort of 15,000 a couple of times. That'd be the top 0.2%. So I sort of thought about it from that perspective as like numbers. And, uh, you know, so I think if you're in the top 1%, top 0.1%, that seems like a good place for high performance for me. So are you driven by numbers or are you driven by happiness? <sighs> Both. I think numbers are sometimes um, a good sort of a way to sort of product to see how well you're doing. But obviously happiness is, is um, a much better achievement if you can get it. There's no point in having great numbers if you're not happy. So... I'm happy with what I'm doing. Like uh, Hugh, I've said many times that even if it was much, much smaller as a business, I'd still be really happy with it because it's something that I'm into, something I'm passionate about. It's uh, a positive product. It makes a difference in the world. So whether it was 10 times the size of what it is or 10 times smaller, I'd, I'd still be very happy about it. But numbers do, you know, I'm competitive. I do, I do want to do well. So I think numbers are important too. For, for those that don't know, and there aren't many of them because Huel is hugely successful. You've sold millions of units around the world since you set it up just, just a few years ago. I think I'm right in saying it. It's now the number one complete nutritional yes. meal drink on the planet, right? Yes. I'm really interested in where it came from for you, though, because, you know, you speak about um, on the previous interview, being an eight-year-old and selling plants at the end of the driveway was kind of the previous entrepreneurial spirit that you showed. And then that disappeared yep. for decades. And then suddenly you go again and you start creating this business, which is now um, Huel. Yep. So where did that entrepreneurial spirit go and how did you suddenly reignite the flame yeah so it's nearly 30 years later so I, I don't know if i can explain it but i suppose i just fell into normality that i didn't have any sort of i didn't come from an entrepreneurial family didn't know anybody so i just followed the sort of normal path so i left school at 16 and just got a, a normal job we just you know my mates just left school i didn't know anybody was even going to do a levels let alone do a degree you know i left school in 88 so i'm quite i'm quite old and uh in those days, that was, you know, degrees were not that normal. You know, now they're very common, but those days they weren't. So people just left and got a job. You know, people went and worked on a building site, a lorry driver, stuff like that. I went and worked in a shop for a year, and then I went and worked digging holes in the road for t uh, two years after that. And it was only her girlfriend who said, look, what are you doing? And that's, that sent me back on into education because she said I was too smart. 
But in terms of entrepreneurship, you know, I just suppose I just didn't think it was really possible. I just didn't think it was what normal people did. So you see yourself as a normal person then? Correct, yeah. I know you get loads of super talented people and I'm the most untalented person probably out of all the people you've had on. You've got sort of international footballers and stuff like that. I'm just a normal guy really. How can you consider yourself, Damien, not talented when you create a product that almost everyone on the planet has, has either seen or consumed? That, that doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't, but that's what I'm intrigued in terms of Julian's... Um, comment that you made there about that girlfriend that had said you were smart that she obviously recognized that you had an intelligence or an ability what was it you would consider yourself to be smart at I don't I don't really know I think I'm sort of I'm a bit of a a jack of all trades but in terms of smart I don't know what I suppose I I I can see I was quite logical so I can sometimes see answers that well the answer should be there because it's a logical answer I seem to be quite good at that sort of stuff but you know when she said I was intelligent compared to somebody who normally just dug holes in a row, she's not saying I'm intelligent to be a rocket scientist or something. So um, I don't know what she saw um, in particular. But in terms of what I was saying about talent, you know, at Huel, for example, nearly every function in the business, there's somebody better than me out of that 120 people. You know, I'm more of an all-rounder than I am an individual. You know, probably marketing is probably the bit that I excel at. But even within marketing, we've got uh, our head of performance marketing he will be better at that than I. We've got somebody who's heads up our CRM. They'll be better at that than, than me. So I'm not super talented at one thing. I'm probably more decent at lots of stuff. Do you feel, though, with creating Huel, that the door has been opened to you to see a world of entrepreneurial success? So you almost feel like now you know the secrets and you know the tricks to, to recreating this again and again? Or is Huel just a unique... Brand. I've done it twice now. So I've sold a business before. So the first business I set up, I uh, built that from scratch with 1,500 quid that I put in, built that, sold that for over $10 million. So I've sort of done it once and did it again. And in terms of secrets, like most things, there are no secrets really. It's just graft. You know, you do have to become very, very obsessed. But most of it is just starting. I mean, I, I think... The reason why there was such a big gap, arguably, is probably a little bit of, <clears throat> I didn't know I could do it. I didn't uh, have any examples of somebody else that I could sort of benchmark against and say, well, I'm just as good as them. And that was part of the, the thing that uh, spurred me on to do that is because I had a need. I wanted to work from home. I wanted to be with my wife because she'd had, well, we had five miscarriages. So I wanted to be at home with her. And um, I met some guys who were running their businesses from home and they those guys were normal guys right and they were running affiliate marketing businesses and some of those were earning serious money you know tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of pounds a month from working from home and i met them and i thought they aren't any smarter than me they're the same they're normal you know normal guys and that was part of the the thing that gave me the uh confidence the belief that i could do what they did and so that's why I had a crack at it and um, worked evenings and weekends until I had enough confidence that I could go and do what they did. Can I ask you a question though about during that period before you before you established your businesses Julian that that you did well in some big corporations for, yep. so whether it was Tesco or, or, or MFI. I'm interested in the courage it takes to leave the safety net of a big corporation. Mm to then set up your own business because I imagine you've got a decent pension, you've got yeah. a decent salary, maybe a company car thrown in there. Yeah. So what was it that triggered you to want to leave that comfort zone behind and then set up and, and, and take all the risk of, of, of running a business 
Well, it's the combination of those three things, really, that I, I met some guys that I had confidence, so I didn't see it as, you know, massive, massive risk. I spent a whole year pre-leaving that job, working evenings and weekends, practicing, experimenting, learning, started earning a little bit of money on the side. That gave me confidence as well. And the fact that I had enough money saved up, we saved some money up during that time because I knew what I was going to do, saved enough money up so that I could survive for six months paying, you know, only bare minimum, but paying the rent, food, bills um, during a six-month period. And then said to my wife, said, if I can't earn my salary by the end of this six months is up, I will go back and get that job again. Because in some ways it is a risk giving those things up, but it's not like the end. You can always go back and get that same job or yeah. a similar job at the end of that six month period. So it felt like I tried to, I'm not that, you know, so talking about entrepreneurs being very risky. I don't think they necessarily are. I tried to minimize risk as much as possible. Nobody wants to fail. Sometimes you have to, but I didn't want to. So I, I tried to minimize the risk. And I felt at that end of that sort of year of practicing evenings and weekends, I felt confident enough that I was starting to earn money. And I thought if I can put more hours in, I can get more money out. So within three months, I was earning more money than my corporate salary. I think what's important here, though, is that when you are employed, apart from being told off by your line manager or having a bad day at work, you almost can't fail because you've got your job and it takes a lot for you to actually lose your job, right? Sure. When you leave to set up your own business, yep. you, of course you're not seeking failure necessarily. Of course you don't want to fail, but you almost have to get your head into a space where you must accept failure is a possibility. Yep. And of course, failure has been a possibility with both these businesses, but... Thankfully, that hasn't been the case. That's the thing that a lot of people struggle with. So how did you overcome the, the, the mental conversation about the fact that failure might happen? I don't know if I even thought about it that really? way. No, I just felt that I was going to do it. And um, I'd built up enough confidence that I was going to do it. I didn't think I was going to fail. So it didn't really enter my head. I thought, I, I can see this now. When, you know, sometimes you work on something that much, you can just see the answer. I could see it. And I was just, I was just, I don't know, cocky enough. I thought I could do it. And because um, these other guys could do it, I thought, why can't I? If somebody else can do something, why can't you do it? That's sort of the mentality I had. See, I think what Julian's talking about there is something that Jake and I have often spoken about. Where does confidence come from? And one of our understandings from meeting guests on the podcast, Julian, is confidence comes from evidence. Yep. And you've described the evidence of meeting other people that were doing it. Then yep. you're giving up your evenings and weekends and you're acquiring more evidence. Yep. Till eventually you're stepping into a world where you know you're capable of doing it. You don't start off confident but you get more confident each time you do something, you get a little proof point, a little more proof point and proof point. So, you know, at the start of that year, I probably wasn't very confident I could do it. But then there's a few things sort of slipped into place. And I thought, ah, right now I've got a result there. So a lot of the the, business, the first business I had was quite um, uh, an SEO business that you had to get traffic from Google. So of course, so once I started ranking a few pages, that gives you more confidence and more ranked and more ranked. And I thought, right, I can see this now. I can do this. So yeah, the confidence came through uh, yeah, proof points. For, for, for other people listening to this, and, and maybe failure is not their issue, sometimes it's an issue of motivation. The phrase I use a lot with people is, action is what leads to motivation. Mm. You can't sit around waiting for the motivation to come. You have to start the process. Can you pinpoint a moment where you thought, right, that is it now, I, I'm, I'm doing this? I don't know if there's a single moment, but I think there was definitely, towards the back end of that year, there was definitely money coming into that bank account. It wasn't big money, but it was, a, it was dribs and drabs. 
but I could see that I was doing this on just like a part time. So I thought, right, well, if I can put full time into this, I could just see that I could put more in. And I just felt that I can, if I put those hours in and it wouldn't happen straight away, if I put you know, six months of solid work in, how could I not, how could this not work? Because I'm earning this amount of money doing these amount of hours. If I do six months solid and I just get my head really stuck into it, I'll get even better. And then rankings take time to, to, um, to filter through. Add it all together, I know it's going to happen. What do you consider solid work? How hard were you working at that time? Um, get up in the morning, 6.30, going to London, getting back at 6.30. So it was 12 hour days. Then I was taking about an hour off to have um, my dinner. Then going back on the computer till sometimes 11 o'clock at night and do it again. And doing weekends, not full weekends, but I was doing a lot of weekends as well. So I did that for nearly a year. Not completely solid. But that was, that's pretty, you know, pretty good going. You know, I think you do need to become obsessed to be successful in those early days because you're trying to move, you're trying to create a snowball with any business you're starting and the heavy lifting is at the start. So it felt like you do have to become obsessed for a period of time to get that ball rolling. And once it, once it goes, then, then you might be able to relax down the line. So it's not forever, but I think in the early days, the first few years, possibly any business, you've got to do mental hours, yeah. Can I ask you about the contrast with these two businesses, so Huel now, but that yeah. original business? Because doing some research on you, Julian, I think there's a changing conversation that really intrigues me. That you spoke about that first business was to acquire a lifestyle and and almost the financial independence yeah. for yourself and your family, whereas this one, this seems to be a greater sense of purpose that drives Huel and your reason behind that. Do you think that gives you? A different approach to the two businesses then definitely so the first business had one goal to earn enough money so i could work from home basically that was what it was as it started to sort of snowball and get bigger then i started thinking right there's an opportunity here to to make me and my family secure for life so that was then the next goal of that business and that's how that ended up that business was a a cash generator set us up for life but i was certainly not proud of it as it as um what it done for the world it was uh a pretty basic business really but it was very good at producing cash so you know i just um you know i was 40 41 years old when that business got sold and i thought i could retire now forever but then is that what i did you know is that the end product of what i could do and i felt that wasn't enough so i got itchy feet wanted to do something else and uh you know if i wanted to just make more money what well, you know i'm not saying i want you know i'm not saying more money is bad but it should be more than that. So I sort of started from the principle, I wanted to do something I was gonna be proud of, and that's different from making money. But still, if you do something you're proud of, <clears throat> hopefully the end result is that it's high quality. If it's high quality, then you should be producing value for the world. If you produce value, then the money should follow. Yep. And some of the decisions we've made at Huel, coming from that principle, have actually been have made it accelerate even bigger. So this business, even though I didn't start with the principle of making money, Huel, I mean, we, we raised, uh, 20 million pounds two years ago now at a value of 220 million pounds so it's worth way way more than that first business but in at no time have we been sort of cutting corners or tried to make more money or tried to engineer the product to be worth more money we've tried to create a better and better product and the result of trying to do something you're proud of making high quality stuff has ended up making a much much more valuable business so it's quite uh, ironic i suppose that if you tried to make money it probably would be worth smaller See, I think that's a really fascinating point that listeners 
can maybe hold on to here that I think too often we get caught in that either we make money or we make a difference. And I think what you've described is it's a both and. We can yeah. both be really successful financially and we can make a difference at the same time. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that. So what would you say the sense of purpose is that drives you and by definition, Hewell then? Well, the, coming back to this sort of principle of being proud of doing something, making a difference in the world. We, I know you guys talk about legacy as well, but I've got a son and I felt that if he looked at my previous business, it's not something he would go, oh, my dad did that. So I think there's something there in terms of <clears throat> doing something that does good for the world is um, um, hopefully a cool product that people look at and they, they sort of, you know, you know, we've, we've created an amazing community as well. All that sort of stuff is just, it's sort of, it's much more rewarding than just straight cash because I didn't need the, the, the cash. That was not the purpose. The world's got big problems. Huel tries to solve one of the biggest problems is how do we feed 7 billion people effectively uh, and with minimal impact on the environment and animals. And you think that we're going to go from 7 billion to 9 billion. So, you know, we hopefully will make a bit of a dent in that. But it's, it's such, so much more rewarding than just making straight cash. But of course, it's easy for me to say because I already made that cash. I know sometimes, you know, it's a, that first business are arguably a stepping stone into making something that makes a bigger difference. How quickly did you realise that Huel was resonating with people? Um, basically day one <clears throat> or even pre-day one. So a couple of little signals that I got pre-launch was um, friends and family. And uh, my first business, my friends, you know, they knew that it was making really good money, but they weren't really interested in it at all. And I remember I, uh, I wore a hoodie um, down the pub once and I hadn't, I hadn't really told them about it. And they said, what's that? They was interested. And <laughs> now I go down the pub quite often, they're all wearing the same like your hoodies, <laughs> right? And so it's something that you could just see, they, there's something about the name and the logo and just... Uh, the ethos and all that added together that people do find engaging. Who came up with the name? Because I think it's human. I mean, it stands for human fuel. Right? Correct. That was me. Yeah, I did do that. So I'm, I'm proud well of that. Well done. There you, you started the conversation telling us you're not <laughs> yeah. good at anything and you've come up with fuel. I mean, I, I love the name in itself. That's enough of a legacy right there. Shall we end the, end the interview? There's your legacy. That sounds really good. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, that was one of the little early signals. Yeah. And then uh, I started talking about it. I can remember talking about it on a, a Facebook group just asking some questions. It was called London Startups, asking some questions on that. And a couple of people seemed to be interested. They're asking me questions about it. And so I wasn't trying to sell. They were asking me questions. So I could see that. And actually two of the guys went on to buy from the test site. I hadn't even sent live. So the, the early signals, you know, I've, I've done it. I've had three main businesses, really. The first two, well, the first one, sorry, went straight away. The second one went really slowly. It went a little bit at the start and it just went back down again. And then Huel went straight away. So, you know, I'm not saying that's, the same for everybody there's lots of business examples where they've just not taken at all for a very long time and suddenly go so it's not always true but the two that i've been most successful with did went straight away and, and with your the the launch day we had you know i don't know a few customers but it just every month it ramped up thereafter and, and has ever since so I, I don't know what the value of fuel is today it's probably above in the billions no not the billions but i, mean, I bet it's not far off though not far off a billion <laughs> would it be so difficult it's probably it's big possibly yeah, right big. so and this is six years five years so it's five years and let's yep. let's say it's approaching a billion pound valuation people will look at that and think that is non-stop unbelievable incredible success 
but I'm interested in the failures and the struggles along the way. Has it been a struggle-free journey for six years? Every day is a struggle, every single day, of course. You've got thousands of decisions. Um, somebody, we were talking about this the other day, and I think I looked at some of my emails. Was, you send hundreds of emails a day. The first, year, first couple of years, I ground myself down so much. I was doing all day, evenings and weekends. And um, I think there was a time when, you know, just... You know, you do just these crazy hours, and I've, I've, you know, I've given up, nearly given up numerous times. It's never easy. Pre-launch was almost harder than post-launch. Pre-launch, just getting the, the product off the ground, trying to find a manufacturer in the food industry is very hard. Trying to find a reliable one's even harder. Trying to find one who wants to make your product is even harder still. So I ne- nearly gave up numerous times. Um, and in post-launch, there was hard times as well because it's. Um, we do a lot of our business on social media. Social media is quite harsh. <laughs> you get quite a lot of criticism and we got we get more than most probably. Why do you think that is? Uh, I just think people are so vicious online and I think that uh, here was a novel product. It's different from the norm and sometimes people um, fight against new stuff and, uh, you know, they say it's a fad, they say it's bad, they, you know, they don't understand it. It's... it's um, no, but you get you know. Every I now wonder now. if that bothers you though, because the alternative is that Huel was a failure. Nobody ever knew about it, therefore no one sent you negative messages about it. It's kind of a byproduct of being successful. Correct. Yeah, no, I get that. But when when you're going through harder times when it's tough, and then somebody's been on your case, then uh, it sometimes takes. But now I've got used to it. So I think in the early days, I was doing a lot of the customer service um, responses, and I was also doing on social media all the comments when we pay for advertising. I hate not to answer people, so our team are now excellent they're really sort of witty so we try to answer everybody in a very witty manner but when people on your case and you're doing it and it's your baby it's quite hard to take the criticism so i used to debate backwards and forwards sometimes with some people i remember one thread was about 40 or 50 messages backwards and forwards with this one guy trying to persuade him and now i just do one if i'm going to do it just re- respond once just say what you got to say move on because you just can't change people's minds sometimes so given that you're creating something new and you're shifting yeah. the conversation one of the things that often intrigues me is that there's a German philosopher from the 18th century, Schopenhauer, that talks about the three stages that all new things have to go through. Right. The first stage is people take the piss out of it. Yeah. I don't think he used that term. But <laughs> the second stage is the uh, the opposition stage where people reject it and tell you why it's a waste of time. And then the third stage is everyone embraces it and eventually right. goes, of course, why weren't we doing this years ago? Yeah. Where's Huel? Probably middle. I suppose the, you still, I mean, you've got different life stages for different people because obviously you know the sort of crossing the chasm type of concept. Yeah. You've got early adopters and, and laggards and all this sort of stuff. Uh, I think it does vary from different people. I mean, we've got some guys that have, you know, people that you know, love the product and super engaged in it and super believe in it. You've still got some people who don't quite get it. We've just launched our latest product, which is more likely to cross the chasm because it's seen as a more normal product. It's made with whole food. So it's made with whole rice and quinoa and um, bell peppers and stuff like this so people can see it more like real food so I think we're sort of somewhere in that middle ground we're certainly not mass market really you know in this country we're probably 1% penetration at best you know we are sort of global we've sold 100 and, I don't know maybe 130 million meals now um, we did 72 million revenue last year but we're not mass market you know we're in Sainsbury's now and some other retailers so we're sort of getting there but i don't think we're quite there yet as being you know the one that's uh, everybody goes oh yeah of course that's obvious sure so going back to those days when even before the product was created and you had struggles and then the early days where you said numerous times you you felt like 
giving up. Yeah. Where are you now at? What's your personal relationship like with Huel now? Are you as dedicated and as involved as you've always been? Uh, yeah, I, I, I've, I've sort of tried to. Are win. you obsessive? Yeah, for sure. I think the the first to an unhealthy degree. Uh, the first three years were pretty tough, yeah. and um, I, I got to a stage where I couldn't. I struggled to do much more. I think you burn yourself out. So um, I got, I got diagnosed with chronic fatigue. Uh, I gave up the CEO role to uh, a guy called James McMaster, who's done a fantastic job, and uh, I split up with my wife at the same sort of time. So there was there was times when it was really intense, and now I'm down to four days a week, and it's much easier. But still, I'm in every I'm probably in every day apart from that fourth day. You know, you still do evenings and weekends a little bit. So, it's very, so it's basically, very, you're not four days a week. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very. Um, it's very, uh, you know, but there's stuff to do. You just want to do it. Yeah. And you could just see opportunities left, right and centre. So it's very difficult just to, you know, I, of course I do chill out and I do sort of spend time family and friends. But, um, yeah, I'm still heavily, heavily involved, sure. I, I, don't, I don't want to pry heavily into your personal life. But what I find interesting is you've managed to create a successful startup twice over. But at the same time, your marriage has fallen away. And I think often the thing that can save... A marriage, if it is savable, yeah. is the same stuff that can make a startup successful, which is to take the difficult times on, to push through the problems, to fully engage in it, to be totally present, to give it your everything. Maybe. Relationships, are, for me, are a lot more complicated, a lot more illogical sometimes, aren't they? They're more emotional-based, I suppose. It's not uncommon, though, is it, for people in your position to have the issue in their personal life because everything is hoovered up by the business I don't think yeah I suppose you can it wasn't I think it wasn't it wasn't just simple I was spending too much time on this and not enough time on that I don't think it's as simple as that if that was I would have fixed it but it wasn't that of course I am I can get obsessive and I do get stuck into things and uh, probably didn't give enough attention to my wife but it was probably a bit more complicated than that sure have you ever had moments Julian where given the success of your first business and the financial security you said it brought you have you ever had moments where, where you have stopped to think, why have I done this again? Like, why did I need to yeah, throw myself into times, this battle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do you reconcile that then? What answers do you conclude with? Uh, okay, one of, one of my last real jobs was a company called Dialophone. The, the two founders there had made some significant money. And I did say to them one day, why are you still here? Why are you coming to work? He goes, well, I went and sat, sat on the beach for six months and got bored. So I think there is, you know, of course you do, when you're going through hard times, of course you sort of look at it and think, what the hell am I doing this for? I didn't need to do this. Why the hell did I take this back on? But the alternative is you go and sit on the beach or you sit at home doing nothing. So you've got to do something. And I think the intention when I started Huel was to do something I was going to be proud of. It was going to be more, the intention was actually to be a lifestyle business to keep you busy for three days a week. Right. Um, so I got that work, work-life balance because, you know, people typically, when they talk work-life balance, they're saying you're working too much, so you need to balance it out with more rest time. But of course, when, when I sold my first business, I took a year, 18 months off, but you can have too much um, relaxation time and not enough work time. I think there's a, it's good to it's have It's often said, isn't it, the two most dangerous years in a man's life is, or a male's life is the year you're born and the year you retire. Because you've got no focus, you've got nothing to work on. Yeah, yeah I understand that. Yeah, my dad's, my dad's only, you know, he's 85 now, but he only stopped working, I don't know, a few years ago because he had to, he had a stroke. 
But he still had a shed down the end of the garden when he went down into three days a week. And that sort of made, made sense. To- Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So when Huel Fest begins, the relentlessness is creating something new for people, trying to tell them the story of Huel. Yep. And I know you, you, know, you say you've got 1% market share in the UK, so I'm sure you're, you're still relentless about telling the story and growing the product. But what is your main focus now? When you have a business that is as successful at this, how do you do you need to constantly adapt and evolve and improve? And how how relentless is that process? What you mean, like setting new goals? Mm. Yeah, all the time. I mean, as soon as you hit one, and I think I think anything is a ladder. So as soon as you sort of say, right, I want to beat this or I want to hit this goal, then you set new goals straight away. So we we do that internally. I've done it, you know, do it in my head. You know, when you first launched, I wanted a lifestyle business. Then it started going bigger than that. So then you set another goal. Then you think, right, now I want to be the world leader. And as soon as you've sort of done that, then you want to do something else. So what would it, you are already the world leader. Correct. So what's the next goal? Uh, well, there's a few. There's some long-term, short-term, medium-term right. goals. You know, the long-term, I think to be a household name would be a, a, a reasonable goal. I think there's an arbitrary number of being a, um, a billion rev business, which is, sounds crazy when we're at 72, but I can see a path to get there. Um, you know, some of these things, they're just, they're sort of non-essential, they're arbitrary, but you still sort of set them in your head. You think, right, how would I get there? Because I think if you think, if you think big, then you, you think more creatively sometimes about how you're going to do that. So we've been growing at sort of roughly sort of 45, 50% year on year growth. So you just do that for the next 10 years and you get to some pretty big numbers. So how, how, do, you, how do you think you can go from where you are now to a, to a billion pound revenue business? What does that path look like today? Well, global expansion is one. So at the moment we, we do sell to 100 plus countries, but we don't really um, fully adapt for those countries or markets to those countries retail we've barely scratched the surface we've only literally gone into a, a handful of stores in comparison to the number of stores in the country and then more products so the savory product we launched has just increased our sales by about 20 percent so if we launch more products and then that improves retention rate and uh, it becomes more mass market or we make more retail friendly products there's so many opportunities i can see how to do it just got to do it, it just takes time as well it takes time and it takes people. So let's talk about how you build a team around you that yep. come on the journey with you. How yep. do you get the right kind of people in your business? Okay, for me, I still heavily involved. So I still interview everybody. 
I think I've got really good taste when it comes to people. I think I can read people quite well. So I know when somebody's bullshitting me, and I know somebody doesn't fit in. There's three things I look for. So I do look for intelligence. I do look for hard working and I look for integrity. So these three things, if you can tick those three boxes, sometimes you need very specific experience. But, uh, you know, we, we want to create an internal culture. I think our, I think our culture is fantastic. I think everybody, you know, we have incredibly low churn rate. I think there's, in the whole five years we've had... I think two or three people who've chosen to leave, one for a much higher salary, one who wants to go travelling, and one for some other reason. I can't remember exactly. How would you describe the culture? I think it's very friendly. I think everybody there, I hear it so often when people come to business, they say, all your staff are lovely. Like, I choose people partly on, I would have a drink with them, you know, like I'd spend the whole evening with them. I would have no problem spending the whole evening with any of our staff individually. I think everybody's really smart, hardworking, and you know, I was talking earlier about two retailers I work for. I work for um, Waitrose and I work for Tesco's, and they both had their strengths and weaknesses. I've tried to get the sweet spot between the two. Tesco's were very, very, let's use the word aggressive, I suppose, very, very high targets, massive growth, um, but there was a cost to that. It burnt people out, um, and there was sometimes a really bad feeling in the house. There would be sort of stand-up arguments, people crying, and I didn't want to work in an environment like that. And uh, the alternative was... At, um, I don't know if I should be saying these names, but <laughs> it's fine. Um, at uh, at Waitrose, I felt the culture there was just too slow. It was there was lack of energy, so they didn't achieve as big a results as Tesco. So I think the sweet spot somewhere in between. You have a really nice working culture, but you have high high ambitions. So you want to be proud of what you do there, and I think the team there really do work graft hard but at the same time we don't do crazy hours like I want people to go home at 5 36 o'clock do your hours get home ha- have that work-life balance so there's a great story that, that Steve Jobs allegedly once recruited a guy from I think it was Coke and said don't sell sugared water yeah come with us and put a dent in the universe right what do you tell people when you're recruiting them into your world so you've established that they're smart they've got yep. integrity yep. they're decent people well pretty much our, we were a mission based business so on our wall in every in meeting room there's our mission up on the wall which is to create affordable uh, complete affordable convenient food with minimal impact on the environment and animals and I think that really attracts the right type of people so it's been I'm saying easy but we seem to attract people people try to come and work for us so I remember one of um, somebody applied to on spec there was no job they just said i want to work for your company they'd taken our back label and they changed the back label into the cv so instead of like best before date it was their born on date and stuff like that they'd really gone to that extent and when you sort of get people doing that sort of stuff you know you've created something special because they want to work and they tried that hard to come work for you that sort of person you know is going to be a fantastic employee so we talk about the fit in or fuck off type of high performing cultures very quickly discern who's not right for us have you ever had that instance where despite all those checks and measures you have people that just go you're really not right for us and we need to move you on yeah there was one that was really not suitable and actually I got persuaded by our board <clears throat> we've got two non-execs on our board and the the person we recruited was in an area which wasn't my area, it was in ops and it wasn't my area of expertise and it was a very senior role and I got persuaded to take this person on. But I remember I've, I could get the email. There's about 10 reasons, little tells that I didn't like. And I said, this person's not right because these little, te- there were only little tells, like, I don't know, silly little stuff that in some of the interview process. And um, yeah, that did not work out well at all. Uh, that was the wrong hire. So now I don't take any notice of anybody else. So I do a final interview for everybody and I've got veto. But we also have two of our old school hooligans know our culture really well. And they've got full veto over me as well. So even I can say yes and they can veto. 
So we have quite a drawn out process. I think you sometimes might have to see about six people before you get in. But having that very high bar to get in means you only have to do that job once, hopefully. Let's talk about the importance of hooligans. Yep. Did you set out to create a, a community of people that like the product or did that community naturally evolve? A little bit of both. One of our objectives is to create a, a, a product so good you, you, you get fanboys. So if you think about Apple products, not only are they good, they're so good that you get these people who come, become passionate and having passionate fans is always a good thing. Where there's loads of products you can name that they've got, people like them, they say it's good quality, but they would never create a passionate fan. So I remember doing a bit of reading about how to how to do that. And there were people right now listening going, oh, ha, what did you learn? Well, I think the, the key thing is to go that extra mile and do little quirky things, little different things that would, so there's a concept of the f- a thousand true fans which was done by Kevin Kelly, who used to write for Wired. And his concept is if you can go that extra mile and create really passionate people, you can create a lifestyle business from a thousand people. That's all you need to do. So don't try and sell to the whole world. If you get a thousand people, his concept is they will spend a hundred pounds a year with you. So you get a thousand people spending a hundred pounds, that's a hundred thousand pound a year business. So when I first launched Sure, I thought, right, if I can get... I can get 1,000 fans each month to pay £45 for Huel, six, roughly 600k a year. Your profit margin is X, which means that you've probably got a nice lifestyle business. So it felt like that's a good way to, to approach things. Rather than trying to think, how do I sell to everybody? Just really niche it right down and go, I'm going to make these people super happy. So the first 1,000 people that bought from Huel, I remember I packed every box, made every box myself. We put a T-shirt in there, so it was more than just you just bought the product. We, I also produced this uh, A4 card that I got designed. I sort of I put a sort of few sort of inspirational quotes on it and stuff like that. I numbered each one, hand you know, wrote, and I hand signed each one. It was like a thank you card from buying from us. Put that in the box. You did stuff that I think um, the guys from Y Combinate do things that don't scale in your first, in your early days. If you're creating something for people, you've got to do something special. If Because yeah. if they're buying, I don't know, a watch, and it's a Casio, then they expect it just to arrive with no... No fanfare. Exactly. But they're taking a punt on you if you're a brand new business. They don't know who you are. They don't even know where it's going to turn up, arguably. They've just seen me online. They've never tasted this product, so I should do something special back. So I think going that extra mile makes a big difference. Then, though, it, it starts to grow, right? Did you find that you did a bit extra for people and then it was word of mouth? Or how did, how did the big community get created obviously this is this takes time so there was no sort of you know massive particular point i do remember that i didn't have any experience with social at all really because i was uh i thought i suppose it just didn't maybe a little bit of facebook yeah but there was a i remember there's a couple of guys from france actually they started posting out of pictures about how proud they were to have this product when it arrived and i remember seeing it i was thinking oh this is interesting you know when i first started where i hired a few people uh, more generalist than anything else and I just said can you look at this social stuff I don't know anything about it some people posting about Huel can you sort of engage with them so we got back to everybody spoke to them and sort of chatted to them and um, it just sort of snowballed from there and so then that, that person's now he leads up our, all our social activity and why was it important to you at the very beginning to create a community rather than just make a nice product and let people drink it I don't know. I just think there's more to life than just selling stuff. So again, I wanted to do something I was to be proud of. And I just felt that if we had a community, if we made people happy, you know, that this is the, you know, we have uh, at work, we have our sort of DNA, our brand values. We also have what the team are expecting of individuals. Mm-hmm. The number one job of everybody is to make, make customers happy. That's your number one job. So 
part of it is a community and again we created a forum on the site where people can chat to each other it's it's just it's just great in every respect you it's heartwarming sometimes when you get the feedback but it's also great for us to communicate with yeah. people because we talk to our customers thousand times a day thousands of times a day and when you talk to people you can learn so we make our products better whereas if you're dealing with retailers we're direct to consumer so the fact we speak to people we know what they want we know what they don't like and we can then work much faster rather than speaking to the buyer at tesco's once every year and getting a little bit of feedback we speak to our customers every day so that whole community that whole uh, you know, our forum is like a test bed. We've got a closed forum where people have signed NDAs and we have really private conversations, give them test products way in advance. It's, it's super useful. Yeah. See, I, what I think is really interesting here is that the most important thing, in my opinion, for Huel is that you made your money before you launched it. Yeah. Because if you'd have gone into this going, I just need to make money, you wouldn't have gone to town as you did with the branding yep. because you absolutely felt really passionate about the branding you wouldn't have created a community of hooligans because it wouldn't have really mattered yep. like you did that because it wasn't necessarily the best business decision although it's turned out to be extremely yep. smart you did it because you really believed in what you were doing and the, the the amount of kind of personal input that went into this business the fact that this was a passion business rather than money making business it feels like five or six years later yep that's the reason for the success. Am yeah. I right? Yeah, you're exactly right. I think that, uh, you know, if, somebody, if somebody's talking to me today and asked me some advice, I would probably say that, you know, there's, there's a time and a place for certain products. Say you wanted to launch a, I don't know, a new electric car, you probably not, it should probably not be your first business. You know, Elon Musk did not make his money making electric cars. He made his money from PayPal, I think. So that business might be more easy to get off the ground. There's certain businesses which are hard to get off the ground and certain businesses which are easy to get off the ground. If you're starting from zero, like I had no rich parents, you know, I started with effectively nothing. So if you're doing that, then you might have to think about it in a different way. You might have to be, create a business that can make money that you can then use for the more hard business because Huel took nearly 18 months to get off the ground from start to finish. If I jacked my job on that one, I would have given up before I got to launch that product. Mm. So you need a business which is easy to get off the ground with minimal sort of investment and is going to pay back and start generating cash pretty quick. Whereas sure, that didn't happen. It took eighteen months to, to get any money out of the door. I think there's a, like as you're saying it, Julian. I'm I'm reminded of a story about the old uh, football manager Brian Clough, and when he was interviewed uh, when he was successful at Nottingham Forest, and he attributed a big part of his success to his biggest failure, which was being sacked by Leeds United after forty four days. And when the interviewer said to him, "Well, surely that was an embarrassment for you," he said, "Well, it was, but." they had to pay me four years' salary and right. for 44 days' work. And he said, and I put the money in my bank, and yeah. he described it as his fuck you money. Yeah. So that it allowed him not to have to compromise when he went to Nottingham Forest. He felt liberated enough to do things in the way that he wanted to do it, yep. rather than, like you say, responding to what a board is demanding of you or yep. wanting to see a return on that investment. Yeah, that's that sounds pretty logical to me. That Yeah, once you've got a little bit of money behind you, you can make... Uh, braver decisions you can do it your way rather than you're sort of scared to make that decision or it won't immediately pay back because like you're right some of the stuff that we did at Huel maybe never pays back I don't know but yeah. some of it was done for different reasons people maybe buy into you a bit more if you're not trying to squeeze every penny out of them and uh, you know some of the decisions we make we've changed some of our ingredients we put much more expensive ingredients in but we don't charge any more money for them because we wanted to make the product better so sometimes it's those sorts of decisions that actually pay back in the long term rather than the short term 
So do you think there is something for a listener here that might be thinking, well, I really want to follow this path, but I don't have that financial security at this moment in time. Would you say it's something about thinking long-term then rather than short-term? So we've interviewed other entrepreneurs that say, don't do it for a three-year investment, do it for a 20-year investment. Mm. Is is that a mindset that you'd encourage? No, I don't think so. Because I mean, it depends on where you are, right? Yeah. So, you know, for me at the time, I had, a, I had to get a business that paid back in six months. That was my challenge, wasn't it? So I think most people are probably more in those shoes than they are in a three-year or five-year or 20-year payback. Yeah. So I think most people, unless you can go and get funding from somewhere, which I couldn't or I didn't even think I could, I wanted to do it myself. So I bootstrapped both all of my businesses. Um, so I think it depends on what your particular goal is, what your challenge is. But I think most people are in the corporate world. They're working now and they want to make uh, money for themselves. Well, if you're going to do that, you're going to need to pay back pretty fucking quick. Yeah. Or you're going to have to do it as a side hustle and do both jobs concurrently because you can't afford to take one year, three year, five year paybacks. So I would say no. I think you're probably better off looking for a business that can pay back quick. Right. Have you read a book called The Go Giver? No. It's I kind don't, of, um, I don't actually read books. I do don't. No. I've listened to podcasts. That's where I've sort of learned everything I sort of probably know. Your story reminds me very much of The Go Giver, which is they have a few fundamentals for business. The first one is give people more value than they're paying you for. Yep. Make them feel like they're getting something for nothing. The second one, which I think is really, really resonates really well with Huel, is the only limitation for a successful business is your imagination. In other words, scale is the absolute key to creating a successful business. Why does someone who is a teacher in a classroom earn 25 grand a year? Someone who creates a teaching app, which is downloaded by 50 million people around the world, make millions of pounds. Yep. They're doing exactly the same thing, but one is doing it to scale. Yep, scale definitely makes huge, huge difference. You think if I, was, if I had a shop in Aylesbury where I'm from and I was selling Yule, it would be a very, very small business. But the fact that we sell uh, globally with one website effectively, you, can, you don't have to sell to every single person. You don't have to convince everybody. You don't have to beg retailers. So the D2C model does make the ability for almost anybody now globally to sell to a global market with minimum mm. investment costs. When we first launched Huel, I think I started with um, a Shopify website that cost me about 10, 10 quid a month, 20 quid a month, something like that. I bought a theme to go on it to make it look good. It's about 180 quid. So you know, with that web- website that cost under $200, you've immediately got global reach. So scale is really, really um, yeah. a bigger, big advantage. You've got kids? Yep, got one boy, 10 years old. I wonder what your lessons in life are for your boy and how influenced your messages are to him by the fact that you have not just been an entrepreneur, but been an entrepreneur who's created a business that is absolute passion passion focused passion based yeah I don't know he's so engrossed in his phone I don't know whether he takes any notice <laughs> of what I do maybe he's uh, ordering Huel products is he <laughs> um, it'll be interesting to see what he does when he gets older he's talked about business a couple of times but I think he's so young I mean it took me until I was 37 to do mine so he's, he's 10 so he's got quite a few years ahead of him I don't know hopefully I've given him a good, good lesson because I could have taken that was one of the reasons I went back and started a business because I didn't want to sit at home for the next 20 or 30 years because what would his be what would his role model be it didn't make sense to me would you recommend that he gets employed or that he employs okay so i think you can you can learn a lot from being employed so i don't think you should you know just go straight out and start your first business because 
if people fail at a business, how many cracks will they actually genuinely have a go at? So say they started a business, they failed at the age of 18 or 20, didn't go, and they did it again, failed again. Whereas I think I got free education through my work. So when I finally did take the plunge, I was probably in a more let's call it educated position. So I was better. I'd learned a lot of mistakes during, the, during my time in the corporate world. I'd seen how to do certain stuff in the corporate world. I had certain training in the corporate world. So I had learned some stuff, hopefully. hopefully. So arguably, you know, they talk about in Silicon Valley, a lot of people, you know, you should start a business when you're 20 years old. That's the time when you've got no risk, you can really go for it. But you've got no, no life experience. You've got, you've got no business experience, really. Whereas when you get older, you're scared to leave. Um, so that's why they say you should do it when you're younger, but you've got all that experience. And in theory, you could, you've got your earning, you can put some money to one side and actually get a little bit of cash behind you. So I think if I was going to say to him, I don't know, it depends on what he wants to do in life. But I think there's, there's, uh, there's pros and cons both ways. I mean, wasn't there a figure that said that um, in, a, in some American study that 57 is the optimum age to, uh, right? yeah, to become an entrepreneur because you've probably got your, you know, your, your, family circumstances are likely to be settled at right. that stage and yet you've got all that knowledge and experience to then go out there and i, I didn't know that practice. but i can i can see some logic to that i, I think probably it's um individual as well like of course you know we talked about you know steve bartley earlier he started his business in his early 20s i don't think i was ready in my early 20s um you know i started my first business 37 she all started when i was 40 41 so i don't i don't know if there's an ideal time universally i think it's probably individual can I ask you a question, Julian, that intrigues me about mentors for you? Because yep. you spoke about when you had that courage to leave the corporate world and set up your first business. Yep. It was because you had evidence of people that you were meeting that were True. running businesses from home. Yep. You're now in uncharted territory in many ways in terms of what you're doing. So where do you get your your wisdom, your advice, the arm around the shoulder chats from? Um, I don't really get arm around the shoulders, but I think getting advice is podcasts. So I was, I was talking to somebody the other day about um, disadvantages and advantages. And so being, you know, Silicon Valley is where some people say you have to go to to make a startup. And uh, I'm out in Buckinghamshire, out in Aylesbury, right? So I've got no sort of infrastructure of entrepreneurship around me, but then that forces me to find it from somewhere else. And if you go on podcasts, you can listen to every, all the greatest entrepreneurs in the world would have done a podcast at one time or another. You can search them out, listen to them and listen to the best people in, in the world rather than your immediate um, friends or family. So you listen, you could learn from the best. So I've probably learned in terms of learnt from, from the best on podcasts. I think they're the most, for me, I don't read books, as I said. So for me, I can learn a lot more from hearing a conversation than I can from reading some big, long, you know, um, text. Do you remember the lessons you've picked up in a few of those podcasts that you're reminded of daily? Um, Stay with you? No, because I just think it's... Or it's, does it just insulate you a bit and make you think, you know what, someone else has been there. They've trusted their gut. They've gone for it. That's what I'm I think it's do. more along the lines of when, when, is a, when there's a specific issue comes up at work or uh, an opportunity, I'll go, I was listening to a podcast and they said this. So I can usually recall them when there's a specific question comes up and I've heard it. But in terms of regurgitating loads of them now, I don't know where I could do that. But definitely sort of, you know, you soak them in. And in each podcast, I hope there's two gems in there, three gems in there, maybe one gem in there, something like that. You don't, it's not the whole lot you go and follow, just like little pieces that you can put into a big jigsaw puzzle. So if there was one gem that you would want to sow in this podcast for a listener, what would that be? I think 
the number one thing that I think is is the, the, the it sounds a bit obvious, but you've got to start. I think you've got to start somewhere. Start and learn. Because I think too many people, they might spend years reading, researching, stuff like that. I When I started, it was easier than what I thought it was. It's clearly harder in other ways, but working's hard too. So when I was digging holes in the road, that's freaking hard too. But So doing a business is hard, but the, the rewards are so much greater than working for somebody else. So I think that too often people don't, they're even not brave enough, they're scared of failure, whatever the reasons is, or they don't have any confidence, they haven't got any self-belief. But the, if you start, you will get more self-belief. So you know there's like this uh, motivational thing about making your bed every day, have you seen that speech? Oh yeah. So it's sort of that sort of logic, that if you just do one thing every day that you've started it, then you realise you've got a bit of feedback. So when I started, I probably wasn't sure that I could do it. Started getting some rankings on SEO and realised, oh, I've that's getting a result, that's getting a result. And then it builds from there. So you become more and more confident in what you're doing. So the, the number one thing is just, you've got to start somewhere. Just start, it's going to be rubbish, but you'll, you'll get better and just get a little bit of feedback that you've got a little result, do it again, do it again, get better, 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 better. And it might take a year, might take two years, but just do something. But don't, don't just jack your job and start, just try and do something in, in your spare time. If you're an entrepreneur or a wannabe entrepreneur, and things are difficult and you're listening to this what do you say to people that aren't sure whether to give up or not because what we don't want to do is convince people to stay in something that is toxic and is yep. never going to lead to anything yep. but at the same time you don't want people to give up when quite often just mm. the other side just yep. around the corner is the success you've been fighting for that is a really difficult decision for people to make mm. that is super difficult yeah you sometimes have to to make things work you have to be resilient and you have to keep going you have to keep going keep mm. going keep going there's other times where you're banging your head against the brick wall too many times and you're just, you're just getting a headache you're not going to go anywhere so how do you get that right I suppose I've had a couple of instances of this myself so pre-launch trying to get fuel off the ground I was struggling to find a manufacturer. I spoke to loads and I um, nearly gave up. I eventually found somebody, a multinational brand that said they were gonna do this. Um, and I thought, eh, done, right, we're on. Then they sort of strung me along for a few months and I started getting a bit frustrated. When are we gonna get this product? And they said, oh yeah, it'll be next month. Da, da, da. After four months, so this was probably 12 months into the whole project, they sent me an email, said, no, we're not doing it. And that one was like, uh, that was nearly the final straw. I said, right, this is it. I've spent How a year on this. How did you come to giving up at that point? It was the, well, I, I had given up that day. I thought, I sod this. Really? I'm not doing it yet. I thought, that's it. I'm done. Why am I doing this? I spent a year getting nowhere, basically. And then I woke up in the morning and I just went, oh, fuck this. So why, why am I going to let that person let me down? So I just went straight back on the phone, made a few phone calls. And on that day, I got in touch with the people that we're still working with today. So it, it, that is an instance where I didn't give up. Yeah. Whereas the business pre-Huel, I did effectively give up and move on to Huel. The difference there was that that business I'd spent probably, I'd burnt 80,000 pounds on that business. I'd spent a good, maybe a year on that as well. And I uh, got some initial traction and I was getting excited. The first day went live and I started seeing loads of sales coming and then it dropped away really quick. And, um, and there was feedback that sort of put me off the business because I started speaking to people and said, why, why are you not, you know, why is this not going, you know, what, what's wrong? And they said, it's too complicated for me. And that's what Huel span out of is because part of that business was giving people sort of meal plans of, uh, you know, the right things to eat at the right time of day, blah, blah, blah. 
and uh, the feedback was I'm a working guy I can't stop at 11 o'clock and cook an egg and some broccoli and I can't stop at one o'clock and spend 20 minutes half an hour cooking some turkey and quinoa etc so it was out of that span Huel and the thing was is that I couldn't get Huel out of my head the concept was why can't you put all the essential nutrients into a single product and the more I thought about it and I started making it in my kitchen I realized there was something there I thought well now this is there's no water in it, and so therefore it's better for the environment. We can make a vegan version. It needs minimal packaging. It's got all the nutrients in a single product. It's t- completely optimized. It's, it's just, it's, it's cost effective. It was just, everything was ticked the box. I started thinking more and more about that, and then I dropped the other thing. So there's times when you have to keep going, and there's times when you have to give up. And I don't think anybody can give you a straight answer to when, but you sort of hopefully will feel it of, I can't stop thinking about this, so I'm going to drop that one and move on to this one. But, this, but other times where you think, no, there's something here, I'm not going to stop. And um, you have to just, yeah, suck it and up. you started this conversation by saying you don't think you're anything special, you're a normal guy. I said I'm not particularly talented. There you go. All <laughs> oh, right, you are special. I didn't say that either. <laughs> okay. okay, you're not particularly talented. Yeah. In your opinion. Yeah. Others will disagree. Do you believe that anyone can be entrepreneurial? and make a successful business? I don't know. I think, I think anybody in theory could because it's, it's not rocket science, but you need, you need resilience. You need uh, willpower, discipline. You need um, probably a very strong work ethic and possibly a, a bit of obsession. And I've had some of my friends that have asked me and tried to start businesses. I helped one of the guys out and he did make some pretty decent money. Um, but he never jacked his job. He did it all on the side. Mm. And I said to him, what are you doing? Why don't you just jack in and just go for it? And he was too, I don't know, fearful. He had a wife, two kids. And he didn't do it. He didn't commit. And he's done this twice now. He's had two businesses on the side. He's done it twice and never committed. And, Which uh, is a shame because he'll never know. He'll never know. Yep. I think it's a mistake. I think he could do it. And he, he was a lorry driver, so he was not a rocket scientist. He was not super intelligent. He was a normal guy, but he, with a few tricks to the trade that I showed him, he could make some money on the side. And he's a grafter. He does work hard. He does evenings and weekends as well, but he never made that final step of, of giving uh, Jack in the job and going for it. But another guy I know, massive ideas. He talks a really good game. Um, no work ethic. He will never make it. So I think some people won't do it. So I think if you've got a work ethic, you've got some brains, some smarts, um, I think you can. I think the, the, the work is the most important thing, is that work ethic, that obsession. If you can do that, if you can suck it up, if you can enjoy people telling you no, I think that's one of the key things. I think you're going to get told no a lot. And when people tell me no, I actually like that. It's more motivation. So you've got a lot of resilience, which is also a key trait for an entrepreneur? I think so. I just enjoy it. Just I like proving people wrong. So I think it's even more motivating than positive feedback. So who are you proving wrong? Anybody who said you can't do it. So that guy who dropped us, you know, a long time ago, um, who didn't make the product for us. I still remember some people at school or teachers at school or stuff like that. They said you, you, you wouldn't do it. Sometimes those sort of people. Even work people. Yeah, anybody who said it. You know, even people on social media I don't even know. Who said this is going to be a fad or whatever. They, that gives you fire. I love it. We've reached our quick fire round. Three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into. Hard work, speed. I think speed wins everything. So if you're too slow, that really frustrates me. And uh, integrity. I love the idea of speed. 
That's one thing that people underestimate the importance of, by the way. Speed wins everything. You talk to a lot of sports people. If you're fast, you can win pretty much everything. Uh, same in business. If you can move fast than other people, yeah, you'll win. So the example I give is, is, is uh, yeah, chess. If you're an average chess player, you will always get beaten by a good chess player, always. It's one of those games, there's not much luck, well, there's no luck involved. If you can make twice as many moves, you'll be maybe the best chess player in the world. So yeah, if you can make more moves, speed wins. What advice would you give a teenage Julian starting out? I've ended up where I wanted to get to, arguably, so I'd probably no advice for let you just go the normal path you did. Because I think sometimes the... The experiences you gain through your life sometimes end up being where you, you got to, whereas one small change earlier might have messed things up. So if I said to him, well, you should have started a business earlier, I might have been, might have been too early for me. So I wouldn't change anything. So I wouldn't give myself any advice, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. How important is legacy to you? Legacy is what you leave behind. Yeah. So you're going to leave something behind. Is it important to you? You would have thought so, because if you're doing good work, you're going to produce a good legacy. I think you want to leave something around. You want to leave the world a better place than you found it. And the final question, what's your one golden rule for living a high-performance life? Work hard. I think that's got to be the number one. I think without that, you're not going to do it. Thank you so much for being on the High Performance Podcast. I think that the, the thing that is in my head at the moment is that there's no secrets here. And I remember thinking as a lad growing up in a small village in Norfolk that all of these massively successful people that I was seeing on the telly and elsewhere knew of something that I didn't know. And when I got a job hosting Formula One for the BBC, that was my first question. What's the secret? What's the secret? What's the secret? I asked it of everybody I met. And everyone said, there is no secret. You've just got to do it. And you've got to believe that it will be a success. That's exactly right. The same for me. That's probably why I didn't, probably why I didn't start my business. Because I thought there was some magic secret that I didn't know. But it's not. It's just doing. What a great way to end. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank thank you. you. Damien. Jake. Loads of takeaways from anyone that listens to this podcast, either engaged in an entrepreneurial life or dreaming of one. Yep, I thought the most powerful message that came out of it there was just start action leads to a reaction that, that allows you to then get smarter and take action again. And I think that it's important for people to remember that he did come at this from a place of safety. You know, he had he had made his money from someone else. And, you know, we've spoken on the podcast to various people that believe that having a plan B can make you feel relaxed. It can allow you to really be your true self. And I think that sometimes we still feel that particularly to be an entrepreneur, we have to struggle. We have to have really dark times. We have to be close to quitting. We have to push through the pain barrier. We have to just attack, attack, attack. And actually, you can do all that. But if you do it from a place of having a plan B or of having a safety net, then I think it can be a much more, not just a more rewarding experience, but probably a more successful one. Yeah, very much. I think it gives you a sense of perspective. It allows that, again, you have that, Rather than either or, I either have to do this or I or I fail. You've got a both and, you know, I can do this and I can have a life that leads to happiness as well at the same time. And I think I think getting out of that binary view of the world of thinking either or and instead trying to embrace the the both and mindset is the way I'd describe it can be a huge benefit to any of our listeners. And I think mindset is such an important thing because I do genuinely believe that we are all born with the ability to to be whatever we want to be. And I'm not saying everyone wants to be a successful multi-million yeah. entrepreneur, but I get the impression quite a lot of people do. The opportunity is there. 
you just got to ignore all the messages that the world decides to give you, which is, oh, you can't do that. You're not equipped for that. You haven't got the skills. You haven't got the talent. Because we just had someone sit in front of us, and he was kind of shy about it, but I wouldn't be surprised if his company is valued at a billion pounds or more. Yeah. And he said, I had no discernible skills. I just went and I just did it. That is the strongest, most powerful message. Yeah, and I love the fact that he did it at 37. You know, this isn't somebody that was doing it from, he wasn't a child prodigy, he wasn't somebody that was gambling everything. This was a man that had a career, a family, and yet still had that, discovered that spark of entrepreneurialism that allowed him to do it relatively late. The takeaway that I'm going to go forth with is, is his chess analogy about you can beat the world's best chess player if you make double the number of moves. Yeah. So just work at speed, operate quickly, blow other people out of the water with your relentlessness. Yeah, action leads to energy. Love it. Right, thanks very much, mate, as ever. Thanks, Jake. Enjoyed it. Well, Damien, wow. I mean, it's been a busy old week. I mean, the reaction we've had to um, Hector Bellerin and Tim Peake, it's it's been remarkable, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think two... Two very different characters, but again, there's been lots of parallels with their journey about the curiosity, the willingness to embrace the process rather than get caught up in the outcome and the suspension of judgment. You know, for Tim, it was about, you know, going on his journey, knowing he might never walk in space. For Hector, it was about not allowing himself to be defined by wins or losses. There's something really powerful in both of the episodes. We had a nice message from Abby on Instagram saying, I've come to the party late, but I love this podcast. I'm a teacher and I found these podcasts so relevant in dealing with mine and the children's mental health. I was hanging off every word that Stuart Webber uttered. What an inspiration and what a lesson for life to ignore the noise. And also a really nice message from Tony who said, amazing high performance. A big take home for me was despite training to be an astronaut, Tim Peake knew it was unlikely he would make it to space, but he saw it as a chance to develop his skills for another job. And I think that's a really, that's a really important message that we try to drive home to people on the, on this podcast, you know, have an aim, have an ambition, Damien, but be flexible about how you get there. Yeah, definitely. Don't get caught up in just assuming that that the outcome is the only definition of success. It's what you learn along the way. You know, like Matthew McConaughey told us, life's a verb and it's what you learn on that journey that is actually where the real high performance exists. Thanks to Stuart Gatalan for getting in touch to say it's interesting to see the similarities between successful people and the differences as to what makes them tick. He says he's been taking notes in his phone from every podcast episode. Talking of making notes and writing things down, um, we're getting to an exciting stage, Damien, on the High Performance book, the first book from the High Performance podcast. Um, We're at the point where we have to send the finished thing across to the (laughs) public. I I know why you're laughing. Um, do you feel like we're there? Have we have we created a book people will want to read, do you think? I think we're nearly there now, aren't we? I think why I'm laughing is that I think when people see the final product, I think what what I like sharing with them is the amount of hard work that's gone in behind the scenes from both of us and from our editor, Rowan, as well, where we've been working pretty relentlessly to try and craft something that I think people can read and enjoy it in its own right, but more importantly, can actually then use it as a guide for their own life, some ideas that might prompt different ways of thinking and different behaviours they can adopt either individually with the colleagues at work or with the children and in their personal lives. That's really important to me, Damien. You know, we say that um, some books are there to improve your shelf development, others are there to improve your self-development. And I don't want this to be a book that people read, put, put on the shelf and think, oh yeah, that was an interesting book. I think that this like 
we've written this book, right? And then everyone's going to get the same information. But the people that turn it into something really useful are the people that decide to act upon the information in the book. Just reading it and saying, oh, yeah, well done, Jake and Damien. You managed to write, I don't know, 150 pages of nice stuff. That's kind of a total waste of my time, your time, and the time of the person that reads the book. This has to be a kind of a process book, I think. Yeah, and and I want people to feel that they can sort of have a pen in the hand when they're reading it. They can scribble ideas down. They can highlight chapters or certain phrases that resonate with them. I think that one of the things that I often reflect on is that what stops people writing a book themselves is that, that, is that they often worry about that first draft. There's a, there's a great phrase called um, by a screenwriter called Nancy Bird that talks about the shitty first draft. The shitty first draft is where you almost get caught in um, in sort of thinking that you can't do it because that first draft isn't perfect. And I think when we hit that, I remember me and you chatting about it and you used a lovely uh, driver for this, that it's a book that you'd want your children to read when they're old enough and see it as a manifesto of the life that their father led, that the lessons that you learned along the way. And I hope that people see it as timeless. It doesn't matter where you're from, it's where you're at. And some of these lessons, they can take it away and use it. It, it'd give me immense satisfaction as I know it would do you if people take it in that way. Oh, absolutely. I love that. Thanks, Damien. I, I couldn't have put it better myself. And if you want to pre-order the High Performance book, you can pre-order it right now. It's out on the 9th of December, but just go to the description in this podcast or go to our website, thehighperformancepodcast.com and you can pre-order it there. Um, that's also the place that you can sign up to the High Performance Circle. So if you like what you get from the podcasts, you can get keynote speeches, boosts of inspiration and extra exclusive podcast episodes along with loads of other stuff that you can't get anywhere else so again the high performance podcast.com is the place to go well damien while we were talking my nephew and my son appeared in the room asking if they could take the puppy out of the crate um <laughs> and she's not had a wee for about three hours and she's barking i know exactly what'll happen if i'm not in the room when she gets released <laughs> So I better go. Um, but as always, it was brilliant to chat with you. Great to record another episode. And I, you know what? I'm so pleased to see that, you know, once again this month, we're verging on a million people downloading this podcast. It's so important, isn't it, to keep spreading these messages? Yeah. And when people are kind enough to tell others about it, that's the best recommendation of all. And um, every time somebody does that, it's hugely appreciated. And hopefully it makes a massive difference in the live, in their lives and in others. Love that. Thanks a lot, Damien. Thanks as well Cheers, to yeah. Hannah and Will for their hard work on this podcast. Thanks to, to Finn Ryan and also Sophie King from Rethink Audio for their hard work on creating this podcast. We couldn't have done it without them. But most of all, we couldn't do it without you at home talking about the podcast, sharing the podcast and having an opinion on it. We don't ask you to agree with everything you hear, but we do ask you to come to this with an open mind. And if you like what you heard, Please don't underestimate how important it is for us. If you share it with some friends, mention it to a colleague, ping it to somebody on WhatsApp, put it on your social media. We don't mind how you pass on the podcast and share the podcast, but please do that. The impact for us is huge. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and whoever you're listening, have a great day. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.